Awesome. Hey, welcome to church. Glad to have you uh, in the house of God with us uh, this morning. As many of you know, last Sunday, uh, we officially launched our uh, five-service schedule here on Sunday morning. And so if you're here uh, at the 1030, you're saying, Pastor, this one is a little too full for me. We got some room in the 1145 and a bit more room uh, in the 1 p.m. So we're just encouraging people to take note of these new service times, invite a friend, Help us continue to build the house uh, of God uh, together. Hey, this morning I'm going to share with you uh, out of the book of uh, 2 Corinthians. The Apostle Paul is the majority author of the New Testament. He writes two-thirds of it. The first one-third of the book of Acts focuses on the life of Peter. The last two-thirds of the book of Acts focuses on the conversion and the transformation of the Apostle Paul. And he goes on to author most of the apostolic letters we have that serve as instruction, correction, and encouragement for the New Testament church. I think one of the great tragedies of our culture today is that many folks read the Bible purely as a historical text. And although the Bible is, in many ways, a historical and an antiquated text, it is the only text that is living, breathing, active, sharper than any two-edged sword, And it is the one whose when its word is released, it never returns void. And if all we ever do is study the Bible through a purely academic lens, we miss out on the text coming alive inside of us and providing fresh, transformative insight that we can apply to our lives today. It's interesting. Sometimes people read the Bible and they think, well, it's such an old book and it speaks to an old culture and it speaks to old people, really about old issues. And we are so enlightened and developed today that none of these issues really pertain to us in the year of our Lord 2022. But can I tell you the same issues they dealt with back then, we deal with today. The same problems they had back then, we've got today. The same idolatry and paganism that they would fall under is the same idolatry and paganism that people fall under today. But here's the great news. The same God that they served back then is the one we serve today. He is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is faithful to every generation, and his word is the only thing that stands the test of time. That's why I'm confident that not only are we on the right side of history, we're on the right side of eternity, because we are firmly planted on the one thing that is unchanged by every shifting heresy of culture. And so for us, we just say that the pursuit is a place where both the spirit and the word changes lives. Maybe the most miserable theology that exists is the theology that says the Holy Spirit is not doing signs, wonders, and miracles today. Like we needed it back then, but we're so educated today that really all we need is arguments. But Paul says, I didn't come to you with arguments. I didn't come to you with philosophy, but a demonstration of God's power. See, it's not either or, it's both and. It's the power that authenticates the text. And so we're a place that practices and believes and engages with a God who is still working miracles amongst his people. You know, when we sing songs about cancer disappearing and tumors disappearing and people being healed, it is not in theory, it is in practice. This is what happens when the kingdom of God comes close. That's why we got to giant metal placard hanging on the side of our building. We're going to cleanse the leper, heal the sick, raise the dead, open blind eyes. Why? Because the kingdom of God is here. The kingdom imperative is a power encounter with a dying world that is looking for hope. It is not simply an argument. We're not gathering on Sunday just to get more education or more information. No, we are here that the spirit of God would reveal who the father is to our hearts and we would experience the miraculous power that follows him wherever he goes. There is no place that his presence fills that miracles don't follow. 
Hear me, there is no place that his presence fills that miracles don't follow. I don't know if you all heard the testimony. I think it came over in the fourth service last week, but we had a couple bring their infant son to the altar a few weeks ago, and the doctors had discovered a mass on his liver, and you can imagine the anxiety and the fear that that would create in any type of family, knowing that your, your son's life potentially hangs in the balance. They came forward, got prayer right here at these altars, and I got a praise report last week. They said, we went back to the doctor. They said, sorry for the confusion. There is no sign of tumors anywhere in your child's body. No, friend, this happens here on a regular basis. It is not to our credit, it's to his credit. This is simply the business that God is in. For scripture says that he is the father of lights. Every good and perfect gift comes from the father above, and in him there is no shadow of turning. Meaning if God did it back then, he will do it today because he's the same God that he has always been. And so we need a gospel with power. It is not about having better arguments. It is not about having more compelling philosophical statements. It is about engaging with a God who is desperately interested in interfering with our mundane lives. And if we can create a church where it becomes natural to be supernatural, we can take the region for the kingdom of God. And so that's what you've signed up to be a part of. And we are setting our face intently in the direction of God's kingdom prerogative, and we will not quit until his glory fills the earth. This morning, I'm going to share with you out of the book of, of 2 Corinthians. It's Paul's second letter to the church in Corinth. It's a church he plants in AD 55 years later. He writes them a series of letters that are correctional in nature. They're encouraging in nature. He helps give them some apostolic foundations that they can build their life upon and in doing so, be successful. Corinth was one of the most important commercial cities of its day. It controlled much of the shipping between the east and the west. Corinth was a place of philosophy, culture, commerce, wealth, but also idolatry and paganism. I think about Corinth like I think about the cities in the northwest. It was a place where every culture collided as people from around the world traveled through for the purpose of both business and pleasure. See, Corinth was very religious. They were just religious in the wrong direction. The city worshiped the goddess Aphrodite and they built her a temple located in the city square. And at this temple, over a thousand prostitutes committed acts of fornication on the temple steps as a form of watch, worship to the goddess they served. And today on the screen behind me is what remains of the temple that that people built to their false goddess Aphrodites. Friend, the kingdom of God is advancing by force. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. Our world is filled with abandoned temples to pagan gods, but the church of Jesus Christ advances. If you build your life on any other pagan philosophy, on any other lower religion, on any other lesser worldview, all it amounts to is hay, wood, and stubble that is burned up when the fire comes. But if you will plant yourself in the house of God, you will be like a cedar of Lebanon. Righteousness will flow first in you and then through you, and your life will be transformed. No, church isn't just a good idea. Encountering God's presence isn't just a good idea. It's a command from scripture as an incubator for transformation in your life. See, Paul is writing a church that is fully immersed in a spiritual war. 
but the forefront of this spiritual war is manifesting through the sexual deviancy of their culture. Does that sound familiar? Don't tell me sex isn't spiritual. Don't tell me sex isn't religious. We live in a world that is trying to divorce sex from its inherently spiritual nature by telling people it's no big deal. We're just hooking up. It doesn't mean anything, friend. If you believe the lie that sex isn't spiritual, you will treat what is sacred as that which is common and end up with an injured heart. And if you think purity is hard, try breaking a soul tie. Corinth used sexual depravity to appease their gods, and our culture uses sexual depravity to appease ours. We call it choice. We call it freedom. We call it exploration. We call it entertainment. We call it meaningless. We call it empowering. But what it really is, is worship. The question is not, does humanity worship? It is simply, what does humanity worship? Our hedonistic culture worships sex as the celebration of an ungoverned and self-determined life. It's on my terms, it's with my body, it's my choice, it's my life, and ain't nobody going to tell me different. See, friends, sex is spiritual because it's covenantal in nature. Sex is spiritual because God ordained it. Sex is spiritual because it is the act of uniting opposites for the purpose of fulfilling God's command to be fruitful and multiply. And if you didn't already know, the religion of sex is on a crash course collision with Christianity. The religion of sex proclaims if it feels right, it is right. The religion of sex proclaims gender is a construct that can be changed whenever or however you want. The religion of sex proclaims I will not abide by boundary scripture, common sense, or covenant. The religion of sex proclaims the education and indoctrination of your children belongs to the state. The religion of sex proclaims my highest allegiance is towards my own satisfaction and pleasure, and anything that gets in the way of that pursuit must be destroyed. Friend, the culture wars are simply a proxy for the spiritual wars so get prepared to fight and this is where we pick up in 2nd Corinthians 3 starting in verse 18 Paul writes the church and he says this but we all with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord we are being transformed watch we are being transformed into the same image from glory under greater glory Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. See, the church in Corinth struggle with this reality. We have given our lives to Christ, but this culture is dominated by depravity, and we find ourselves easily given over to our past lives. And Paul writes the church as a father in the faith with great anguish and pain as he simply spends the majority of his letters reminding these Christians in Corinth of who God says they are. Friend, the greatest way that we encourage others into righteousness is by simply reminding them of who God says they are. See, righteousness is your identity grace and mercy it is your portion shame and condemnation is not your inheritance brokenness and pain is not your future I have never found shame to be a good motivator for transformation in fact it's when I know that I don't deserve grace and yet I have found it that causes me to truly want to live in the light I've got good news for you this morning. Every believer in this room is in full-time ministry. 
Paul says it here in verse 4 and 1. Therefore, since through God's mercy, we have this ministry. I believe that this ministry that he's referring to comes in the verse prior to 4 and 1, which is 3 and 18. We are being transformed into that same image from glory unto glory. Friend, you are in the ministry of transformation by which day by day you are looking more like Jesus and less like what he rescued you from. Watch. Transformation in the Greek is the word metamorpho. It's where we get the English word metamorphosis. It's the process of transformation from immaturity into maturity. A change of form by either natural or supernatural means. Oh, if God can take a caterpillar and turn it into a butterfly in under three weeks, just imagine what he can do with your life. If God can take a tadpole and turn it into a frog, I've got good news. You are not too broken for God to use. To be transformed is to become what God has always intended you to be. Friend, transformation isn't about the destroying of your life, but instead about the revealing of your life. Now let me hit this this morning. There seems to be this Gnostic belief today that if God truly loved us, he would have no desire to change us. But what hides behind this falsehood is the idea that God's love only exists to affirm our dysfunction instead of transform our very existence. And you know that the most powerful change agent in the entire universe is the love of God. It's what takes the addict and makes them sober. It's what takes the leper and makes them cleansed. It's what takes the woman caught in the act of prostitution and makes her unashamed. It's what takes the tax collector and makes him generous. God loves us just as we are, but friend, he loves you way too much to leave you the same. And God doesn't love the transformed version of me any more or any less. I don't develop to earn his love. I develop out of the revelation that I am already radically loved. And Paul says possibly the most potent five words that the church in Corinth will ever hear in the end of verse 1 in chapter 4. He says, we do not lose heart. It's actually a theme of Paul's apostolic ministry. He says it again in Galatians 6 and 9. Let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. In Proverbs 27, it says it like this. I would have lost heart unless I believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait on the Lord and be of good courage. Watch, he will strengthen your heart. Proverbs 4 and 23, above all else, guard your Heart for everything you do flows from it. That word heart in the Greek is the word cardia. It's where we get the English word cardiology. It means mind, character, inner self, will, intention, desire, passion. Friends, you can lose your keys. You can misplace your phone. You can forget your wallet. You can even lose track of your kids. But if you lose your heart, you lost the one thing that matters most. For everything flows from the heart. For Proverbs 27 says, as water reflects the face, so one's life reflects the heart. Proverbs 17, a cheerful heart is good medicine, but a crushed spirit dries up the bones. Proverbs 13, hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a promise fulfilled is the tree of life. Friend, we don't guard our hearts to keep them hard. We guard our hearts to keep them soft. 
I'm guarding myself against the cynicism of our culture. I'm guarding myself against the desensitization of our world. I'm guarding myself against the polarization of our nation's narrative. I am guarding myself against the feelings of hopelessness and negativity. I am guarding myself so my heart can stay soft for the seed of the gospel. And it's really not even so much that I'm guarding my heart from something as much as we are guarding our heart for something. And hear me, friend, if you follow this Jesus, you will experience heartache. If you follow this Jesus, you will experience betrayal, disappointment, and confusion. But here is what I've learned. I can trust the one who is familiar with my suffering. I can trust the one who was despised and rejected by mankind. I can trust the one who was acquainted with grief and held in low esteem. I can trust the one who made himself of no reputation, took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of man. The one who humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross, that is a God that I can trust with my heart. I had a mentor tell me once, and it always stuck with me, don't let compliments go to your head, and don't let criticism go to your heart. What I've found is that oftentimes what the drive-by critics in our world like to do is they like to take particular snapshots of a bad moment in your life. And then they allow this Polaroid to be the image by which they remember you for all of time. And every once in a while, when you begin to gain momentum or gain trajectory, they, they like to take out this Polaroid of your last mistake and, and wave it in your face. But can I tell you, friend, the next time the enemy tries to wave your past in your face, would you just go ahead and remind him of his future? Come on, his skull is going to be crushed. He's going to be forever bound and thrown into the lake of fire. Come on, what you have done is not who you are. You are, in fact, everything that God says you are. And we've all got Polaroid from bad moments in our life. But a bad chapter doesn't get to define the book. A bad incident doesn't get to define my spiritual trajectory. No, I've got Polaroids, but the God I serve is painting the most brilliant picture. His plans for me are good. If it's not good, it is not done. And surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. You are not what you have been. You are what Christ has done on your behalf. Now, Fred, watch. I love this. Paul says this in verse 2. He says, rather, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. No, we do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth or declaring forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. We declare the truth plainly. Friend, this is a time for the plain telling of truth in the church of God. I never thought it would be so controversial to say plain truths. But maybe that's because our churches have become so accustomed to complicated lies. I refuse to hide behind nuance when it is time to tell the truth. 
I refuse to hide behind cowardice when it is time to tell the truth. I refuse to hide behind ambiguity when it is simply time to tell the plain truth. And here is the plain truth. We believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. We believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. For he was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell on the third day, but he rose again. He ascended into heaven and he is seated at the right hand of the Father, but he will come again to judge the living and the dead. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Universal Church, the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body and life everlasting. And there is no other name under heaven by which men must be saved outside the name of Jesus. Friend, that is the plain truth of the church of Jesus Christ. We got to get back to some of these apostolic creeds and apostolic confessions. No, this is just who we are. It's what the historic church believed. People running around so scared to death, we can't even say things like Jesus is not just one of the ways. He is the only way, the only truth, and the only life. You don't get just labeled hate speech by the culture. You get labeled hate speech by the church. Well, what if we offend? And what if somebody doesn't see it the way that you see it? Friends, Sunday mornings is not the time for sharing opinions. It's time to tell the good news of the gospel. And the good news of the gospel is that there is a real heaven. There is a real hell. There is a real father who has a real son who sits at his right hand, who is worshiped by angels, elders, and living creatures. They cry out day and night, holy, holy, holy is the one who was and is and is to come. And the lamb of God is worthy to receive the reward of his suffering this is the plain truth of the church now watch watch it gets better Paul says this watch he's given the church context he's helping them the church is only spiritually five years old they're still running around in their spiritual pull-ups and he's writing them as a father in the faith he's saying let me remind you of who you are Let me remind you of the type of God that you serve. And in doing so, the net result of those two reminders will be that you will not lose heart. Now watch, I love this. I love this. He says this in verse 4. He says this, The God of this age, who Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ. For what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ, watch, as Lord. For God who said, let light shine out of the darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. Hear me, friend. I don't get upset when the world acts like the world. But I do get concerned when the church acts like the culture. Friend, they have been blinded by the God of this world. And the answer to this blindness is found in preaching the Lordship of Jesus Christ. No, he is not just your Savior. He is your King and he is your Commander. Oh, our world is fine with a Jesus who saves. And he is our savior. He has rescued us from our sin and our depravity and by his power translated us out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Hear my heart. Jesus is our savior. 
But it's his saviorship that introduces us to his lordship. And there's a lot of folks in our culture who get trapped by a God who only saves but cannot rule and demand their life. And can I tell you that's the difference between immature believers and mature believers? No, my life is not my own. My prerogative is not my own. I'm not building my kingdom, I'm building his kingdom because there has been a demand from heaven placed on my life by virtue of declaring him as Lord. Now watch. We aren't preaching ourselves. We are preaching the resurrected king. The gospel is not look at me. The gospel is look at him. Now watch what he says in verse 7. It gets better. He says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. I love this. Watch. When I got engaged, I put a $5,000 diamond ring in a 25-cent box. Maria wasn't impressed with the box because the box wasn't the point. It was just a container that held the treasure. See, God has placed priceless treasure inside of earthen vessels to demonstrate that the power from transformation doesn't come from us, it comes from Him. And we hold this treasure. And when we allow the exterior to dictate the interior instead of the other way around, we do a disservice to the wealth that God has deposited inside of us. Friend, the box holds the blessing. It doesn't define the blessing. The box presents the treasure. It doesn't dictate the treasure. And I don't care if you've been sober for three days. You've got treasure inside of you. I don't care if you've made life-altering mistakes. You've got treasure inside of you. I don't care if you feel like you squandered all your best opportunities. There is treasure God is getting ready to uncover. And this, in fact, is going to be the year of God's favor for your life. Friends, you've got treasure inside your vessel. Now watch, it gets better. Watch what he says in verse 8 and 9. I love this. I want, I want to show you what Paul is saying. And then and, and just for a moment, I want, to, I want to digest the dichotomy that he's presenting to the church in Corinth. Watch. He says, we are hard pressed on every side, but we are not crushed. We are perplexed, but we are not in despair. Yeah, we are persecuted, but we are not abandoned. In fact, we've even been struck down, but we are not destroyed. I want you to see what Paul is saying in this verse, because I think it's going to help you this morning. We are hard-pressed as an activity, but we are not crushed as our identity. We are perplexed as an activity, but we are not in despair as our identity. We might be persecuted as an activity, but we are not abandoned as an identity. I might be struck down as an activity, but I am not destroyed as my identity. See, friend, hardship isn't a disqualification of your calling. It's the authentication of your calling. God has trusted you with different things and 
friend, that's a reason to rejoice. No wonder Isaiah the prophet says it like this. When you pass through waters, I will be with you. When you pass through the waters, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. You might be staying in Potiphar's house, but you are not Potiphar's son. You might be staying in Pharaoh's house, but you are not Pharaoh's son. This circumstance might be my temporary dwelling, but it doesn't have permission to be my permanent identity. Hear me. My particular season of life does not have permission to make me its offspring. For I have received the spirit of adoption. That's who I am. See, I can walk through sorrow without developing a spirit of heaviness. I can walk through sickness without developing a spirit of infirmity. I can walk through a storm without developing a spirit of fear. And I can walk through the wilderness without developing a spirit of confusion. See, sometimes I think we give too much power to our seasons in life. When the command of scripture is actually to bear fruit in season and out of season. See, my spirit dictates my season, not the other way around. My location is not my identity. My calling is not my identity. My gifting, my troubles, my hardships, they are not my identity. Sometimes I hear church people, they say things like this. Man, I haven't seen you in a while. Where you been? Ah, pastor, I'm just not really in a church season. Yeah, I'm not really in like a worship season. I'm not really in like a tithing season. I'm not really in a community season. It sounds like you're in a disobedient season. <laughs> sounds like you need to learn the art of dictating to your season what manner of spirit you're going to operate in because your storm doesn't have permission to prophesy your future. See, if my heart stays healthy and my spirit stays encouraged, it doesn't matter what season I walk through because he is the rod and staff who comforts me. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake and surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. Man, if there's a message that the church of God needs in this season, it is this, do not lose heart. If there was anyone who had an excuse to lose heart, it was Paul. He'd been left for dead, shipwrecked, beat, abandoned, stoned. Not like the people in Washington State get stoned, but really stoned. I think Paul is writing 2 Corinthians as much to encourage that church as he is writing it to encourage himself. You know how sometimes when you encourage somebody else, it prophesies to your own life. Like I'm up here saying, do not lose heart, but God's saying it back to me. Russ, do not lose heart. I think as Paul is talking to the church in Corinth, all of a sudden his spirit man begins to grow. All of a sudden he begins to stir up that faith. All of a sudden he begins to stir up that gifting. He's simply reminding himself of everything that God has declared him to be. And I want you to know, friend, I'm not trying to minimize your difficulty. I'm not trying to somehow pass over that season of hardship you're in I'm trying to remind you greater is he who is in you than he that is in the world and what God says about you is the most final and true identity that you could ever receive that's the type of God we serve and that's the type of believer you are we do not
not lose heart. Come on, would you stand with me as we close? Hey, let me pray for you today and encourage you in the Lord. Father, now in the mighty name of Jesus, we ask for your ever-present help in our time of need. Spirit of God, I pray that you would begin now to do a work of supernatural encouragement in the midst of some hearts where folks feel like they're about to give up. I declare courage over you. I declare strength over you. I declare hope over you. I declare that it is his anointing that still breaks the yoke of bondage. I declare over you his yoke is easy and his burden is light. I say heaviness go, joy come. I say depression go, hope come. I say dysfunction go, function come now in Jesus name. You will not lose heart, you will endure. God, we pray that you would strengthen us. That today we would receive the plain truth of the gospel. And in doing so, out of our innermost being would flow rivers of living water. God, we're going to give you all the praise. We're going to give you all the glory for the great things you've done. In Jesus' name, come on, all God's people said amen. Amen. Friend, if you're here today and you'd like prayer, but before you take off, I'm going to invite you to these altars. I want to add my faith to yours to see God do a miracle in your life. If not, God bless. Hey, thanks so much for joining us for 1030. We'll be back here next week, all five services. Hey, why don't you invite a friend? Let's help build the house of God together. We'll see you real soon. God bless.